Yeah, I want to introduce our guest pastor today. His name is Chuan Kim. And as he said, he's a Johan Kim's brother. And he's currently serving a church in Austin named The Well. Uh, he is plan church planning in the next year in North Austin. So if you could please give a virtual clap uh, for Chuan. Welcome him. Hey, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, uh, Forest Community Church. Uh, it is a great honor to share God's word. Um, yeah, so my name is Juan Kim. I am born and raised in Denver, Colorado. Uh, that's where I call home. Um, that's So it's really hard for me for the Super Bowl to ch cheer for the Chiefs. Um, I also don't like uh, Tampa Bay. Actually, I don't mind Tampa Bay. I just don't like the other TV, Tom Brady. Uh, always cheered against him. Um, but uh, man, the gospel is real in a lot of ways because, you know, New England and the Chiefs are probably one of the two teams that I hate the most. Um, but uh, my wife is actually a, a from New England. She's from Massachusetts. Um, she we were met in, uh, when I was in seminary at Gordon-Conwell, um, got married. And for the last seven years, uh, we've been serving in a church in Austin called Austin Korean Presbyterian Church. And I was a youth pastor uh, for 10 years, seven years. I'm serving there. I, that's how I met Hejin, Um, and she used to be one of our teachers. Uh, but we, as a family, received the call to uh, church plant, and I'll get into that just a little bit later. But if you guys can see my slide, I want to show off my beautiful family. This is our family. This is Christine and uh, our firstborn son, Isaiah. Uh, we got to include the dogs. Uh, we have good-looking dogs. Um, one of them, Shiba Inu, his name is Miles, um, after Mile High, and then Cora, our Aussie. Um, and uh, uh, we have a new addition to our family. Uh, so we have a newborn that's two months old. His name is Ezekiel. Um, we thought like we would be cute by having a Disney show. Zeke and Zay are their nicknames. Uh, so it sounds like a Disney show uh, in a lot of ways. I am not a Cowboys fan. So please do not think I named him off of Ezekiel Elliott. Uh, but we just loved how Zeke and Zay sounded. Uh, so yeah, that's a little bit about my family. Um, yeah, so we are actually church planting here in North Austin in the domain area. And I would love to connect with anybody who's interested in, in talking and, and really uh, partnering with us as we begin to do that. The vision is for us to do a church that's multicultural, multi-ethnic. And if you know the Austin area, we're planting in the domain, uh, which is like the outdoor mall. Um, there's no church there and God is literally gathering uh, thousands of people there every Sunday, and we just want to uh, just minister uh, to them in a lot of ways. Um, like uh, Hayun said, uh, Johan is my brother. Um, I call him Brohan, um, brother Johan, Brohan. Um, I, I, you guys uh, can get to know him. Um, I, I myself uh, will always say that I got the good genes. Um, I'm better looking, more fit, more intelligent, um, smarter, and you know, in all things. Oh, I'm just kidding. I uh, just got to throw that out there, but uh, man, I uh, Forest Church has been just a great um, place in my heart because of them and their heart and uh, serving and being part of this church. Uh, but yeah, so let's just go ahead and let's dive in, um, guys. I so I'm at a multicultural church right now, and our lead pastor is black, and you know we have a congregation that's really diverse. So I'm used to people like shaking their heads and nodding and doing all things. So if you guys at any time just want to give an amen, you guys can unmute yourselves. I will not 
uh, feel like you're interrupting me. If you guys want to do a virtual clap on Zoom, you're more than welcome to do that. If, or you can just shake your head. And, and um, that stuff really encourages me as I begin to preach God's word. Um, and I get really intense. So I think it's, I don't know uh, the style of preaching that you guys have been hearing, but um, just don't get alarmed if I'm shouting. Like, you know, if you have children, just, you know, you guys can kind of uh, warn them and know that uh, we're about to go, we're, we're about to go to war. We're going to go, we're going to get this. Um, so I kind of wanted to preach on Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter four. Uh, before I want to get into the part where I'm preaching on, I kind of want to give us an update on the historical context of what's happening in Nehemiah. So Nehemiah, the Israelites are in captivity and Jerusalem uh, is, is overturned and the walls that would protect the city are actually demolished. And Nehemiah is actually serving a foreign king, Artaxerxes. And in that process, while he was serving, he receives a vision from God. And he receives a vision from God that says, hey, I want you to go and rebuild the wall. So Nehemiah, in chapter one, we see him, he receives this vision from God. He begins to fast and pray and mourn, seeking God in the vision he has called him. And we see this heart stir up for the affections of God's people and for him to receive that call and answer that call. And then in chapter two, we see Nehemiah in fasting and prayer. He begins to take action and he asks the foreign king to actually fund the vision of God to rebuild the wall. So there's boldness in him asking and having in faith, knowing that this is God's vision for his people to go back to Jerusalem and build the wall that's been destructed. And then in chapter three, we see him kind of gathering the people to rebuild this wall. So in chapter three, we see examples of him getting everybody, every person in town from their mothers, their brothers, their sisters to their kids rebuilding this wall. And it's a beautiful picture of what a harmonious community can look like as they re begin to rebuild this wall. And then uh, we go into what we're going to chapter four. And here's the thing, right? So, so far, it seems like things are going well. The foreign king is fronting a couple mil and, and, you know, the people come together. They're singing Kumbaya. There's rainbows and bunnies and they begin to rebuild this wall. And, but here's the thing, right? In every great story, there's a great villain. And that's the thing that I really want to talk about. Because oftentimes when you're doing God's work and walking in his will, opposition will strike back. Opposition will strike back. In fact, I almost would say and argue that if you do not feel opposition at times come at you, you should really question if you're doing God's work. It's not a matter of if opposition comes, it's a matter of when opposition comes. And the thing that I really want to ask ourselves in Forest Community Church is when opposition comes, what answer do you have? What answer do you have? Do you prep and begin to understand that when opposition comes, that we have the ability to fight that. What do you do when opposition comes? What answer do you have when things begin to unravel? Because the fact of the matter is that opposition, it comes at waves that begin to engulf you and you begin to feel trapped. And you say, I wish I can say like all the moments that you will experience in your Christian walk will be full of joy. But the thing is this, if I'm going to be honest, how can we say that every moment is joy because we live in a world which if every moment was full of joy, we wouldn't yearn for that which is to come. 
And as Christians on this side of earth, don't we yearn for the coming of Christ to come back? And because of that, Forest Church, opposition will come. And as God's people, we shall not be afraid of opposition, knowing that it will come. But in the midst of that, that we would prepare our lives, that we would polish the pistols, prepare for battle, pass the pump. Now, a lot of you guys are looking at me confused. You guys had no idea that I would quote Tupac Shakur. I love rap music. I kind of grew up in that era. Uh, so I just quoted Tupac. I probably the first time I would say that in Forest Community Church that Tupac Shakur was, was quoted. Uh, but what does that mean? It means to buck up and prepare to scrap. Or in other words, to get ready to rumble or get ready for the opposition to come. So here are my three points for today. My three points are this. The aim of opposition, the aim of opposition, the response to opposition, the response to opposition, and finally, the victory over opposition. The aim of opposition, the response to opposition, the victory over opposition. So let's go in the first part, the aim of opposition. Um, let's go ahead and let's open our Bibles up to Nehemiah chapter four, uh, one through eight. Nehemiah chapter four, one through eight. Um, give us a couple seconds for us to turn to there. This is what the word of the Lord says. It says this. Now, when Sambalot heard they were building the wall, he says he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones of that? Then Tobiah the Amorite was beside him and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And he says, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now, verse six says this, it says, so we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. And then it says, but when Sambala and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Am Amorites and the Ashdodites heard that the reaping of the walls of Jerusalem were going forward and that they were uh, breaches were beginning to be closed, they were angry or very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. This is the word of the Lord. So here's what's happening, right? So when the vision of God is being played out, opposition will begin to rise. And as opposition comes, we as God's people, do we cower and run or do we keep pressing on and being reminded of the vision and the promise that God has for us? Because Look, here's what's happening, right? The walls are being rebuilt, meant security and protection. As we see the beautiful picture of the harmony of community coming together, the voice of the enemy begins to threaten, deceive, manipulate, and attack, ultimately leading to the discouragement of the people. So what does verse 1 says? It says this, Sambalot heard that they were building the wall, and it says he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And here's the thing, it doesn't just take, say that he was upset at the situation, but it says that he was 
greatly enraged. When God is work, God's work is beginning to happen, the enemy is greatly enraged. And the means of attack they begin to do is mock, ridicule, threaten, hoping, hoping that God's people will be ashamed, embarrassed, and discouraged. So verse 2, look what he does. He says this. This is a paraphrase. It's like, what are these feeble Jews doing? And it says, will they even restore it? Will they sacrifice? There's so much work to do. They are perfumers and farmers. Will they finish it? Man, look, what is the point of building the wall? Don't you see that you're not building a new wall? That's what he says. You're building a wall that's already come down. Do you see the burned stones and the rubbish? What difference are you making? And then on top of that, Sambalat, we see his yes man. And we, I think in every kind of opposition or gang, you always see that one guy that's kind of in the background. He doesn't say a lot, but right when uh, the main character comes and says something, he kind of is in the back. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that's kind of what his next man comes, right? And Tobiah comes and he's, he comes in and look what he says. He says something snarky and, and, and just like unprevalent and he's sarcastic and he says, yeah, the wall's falling apart. Even if a fox goes on it, it's going to crumble. And he says that, right? So they are mocked and ridiculed and they say things like, you can't even do that. It's dumb. It's a joke. They should just give up. But here's the thing. In all that they said, if we're really paying attention, they are kind of telling the truth. They're kind of telling the truth. There was just enough truth in the lie that they said, because let's be honest, they aren't rebuilding a new wall. They are rebuilding an old wall, meaning the first wall fell, and it probably was hard to do. There was grueling hours of repetition and in the midst of hard work and long hours where you look at something and you ask yourself, is this even worth doing? What happens? The enemy strikes. The enemy strikes. The enemy begins to deceive. So here comes opposition. And the aim of opposition is to tell you half-truths and deceive you and discourage you. Man, um, I have a three-year-old son named Isaiah. And, you know, like as any three-year-old and healthy boy is, he has tons of energy. He keeps us busy. He runs everywhere. And he, like our house is always in disaster because my son is, he he follows after his father and he is he just loves playing and doing these things and uh but we as a family will always make him clean up but like our whole house is a mess and i'll be like hey isaiah all right it's time for dinner you need to clean up and he'll look at the mess and you know like as any three-year-old tantrum does he'll like throw the biggest tantrum because he doesn't want to clean and he'll like be so discouraged and I look at him and I'm like, all right, Isaiah, let's start slowly. And, and like, if Isaiah starts focusing on the thing that he wants to do and slowly cleans up one part of the house before he knows it, what happens, he ends up cleaning his mess. But before that, he looks at that and he doesn't want to do it. And I think oftentimes that's kind of what happens, right? Ultimately, here's the thing. When opposition strikes, it deceives you. It tells you half truths. It discourages you. But ultimately what happens, it it's the enemy's aim is to take your eyes off the work that God is doing. The power of God's vision is to rebuild the wall. It's not in the bricks and would give protection, but God himself is doing a work. And if it's God himself who protects, the aim of God's people is not just to see the work that needs to be done, but it's to remember the one who has called us to do the work. 
Because a far greater truth is that God is doing a mighty work in Nehemiah in rebuilding the wall. And the enemy will do whatever it takes for us to become blind to the power of God. And isn't that true? Isn't that true? We're in February. And, you know, if, if, if you are a typical um, person who does New Year's resolutions, what happens, right? January rolls around and you have all this New Year's resolution to pick up your Bible and have consistent uh, reading and all these things. But what happens? We get discouraged. We read and we feel like we're wasting time or it's not the same or God isn't speaking to us in, in clouds and all these things. And the enemy is telling you a lie because we forget the beauty of scripture in whole that it's God's redemptive love story to us. And do not, people in Forest Church, do not lose sight in what God is doing. Or even if, uh, for these online gatherings or these online worships, right? How many of us, man, it's hard, right? COVID is hard. It's been hard. Not meeting with friends and getting together, it's been hard. And if we're not careful, we listen to the lies of the enemy that say that what's the point of waking up on Super Bowl Sunday to go and worship? And it's been hard. Or it's been hard for us to get on Zoom and fight for community. Uh, at the well, we often say this. You don't just find community, you fight for community. And oftentimes in your house churches, it's hard to go and, and do those things. And we're sick of looking at a screen. We work uh, remotely and we're staring at a screen. And then for our, our house churches, we're doing the same. And it's hard. It's grueling. But the thing is this, the enemy, he begins to distract you. And, God's, and, and God is commanding his people to keep your eyes on what God is actually doing. We need to understand the work of opposition, that in the vision, in the work of God, the enemy begins to prowl. The enemy attacks and trying to break you internally by deceiving you and giving you lies. So Nehemiah, what does he do? We see Nehemiah time after time in the book. He begins to pray. He begins to pray. In verse 6, he presses on and, he, and, and the people continue to what they rebuild. So what does the enemy do? So if you look at verse 7 and 8, this is what it says. Now, when Sambalot, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Amorites, and the Ashdodites heard that the restoration of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward, and the gaps were being closed, it says they were very angry. So all the people of them plotted together to come fight against Jerusalem to make trouble for it. So what does he do? Sambalot, he threatens, he tries to discourage the people Nehemiah prays and encourages, reminds them to keep the vision, and they go back and they start rebuilding the wall. And as he does that, um, Sambalot and Tobiah, they go back and they get more people. They get their homies, right? They get um, all these people and they come and they, are, they tell half-truths to stir up doubt. And right when you begin to take your guard down and lose focus, they threaten God's people and the threat of defeat begins to discourage the nation. It discourages them. And no longer do they see the mission and vision of God, but they begin to see what the enemy wants them to see, and they become discouraged, right? One of the verses says this, but Judah said, the strength of the carriers is failing, and there's too much dirt, and we're not able to build the wall. And notice at that exact moment in verse 11, the discouragement of the enemy says this, they will not know nor see until we come upon them, and we will kill them and stop the work. Because they are hearing the voice of the enemy, they become discouraged and forget the power of God. They begin to forget the power of God. And isn't that what goes on today? 
When we are faced with opposition, we begin to hear that voice. And if we as God's people are not careful enough, we begin to be deceived in the lies that the enemy makes. And we begin to let that creep in, doubt ourselves. And in doubting ourselves, we begin to doubt the vision of God. And as we begin to doubt the vision of God, we ultimately begin to doubt God himself. And in that, that you no longer hear the truth of who you are as God's children, but become deceived by the lie of the enemy. And the lie of the enemy always is not to build you up, but to utterly destroy you. And as that begins to happen, you feel guilt, shame, lost, discouraged. And you stop gazing at the truth of your identity as a child of God and the work that God is going to do through you. So it's not about if if opposition comes. It's about when it does. Are you preparing yourselves for impact? Man, um, a couple years ago, uh, my family and I decided to get uh, a new car. So we we got a Toyota Highlander. Um, and I loved that car. It was maybe like two or three months old. It was uh, kind of one of our first purchases as a family that was new. And, you know, it was a great car. And I remember... I was on my way to actually a morning uh, men's prayer breakfast and I was driving and uh, there's a street in Austin called Palmer. And as I was driving and going to this, this prayer meeting, um, I saw in the corner of my eye, this deer that was like just darting across this road. And, you know, like when it comes to fight or flight, I'm actually more of a fight. So if somebody tries to scare me, my initial reaction is not to come back, but it's actually to hit. So people don't don't try to scare me, right? Um, but so when I saw this deer, I knew that I couldn't avoid it. And a lot of people, what they do is they'll break, right? They'll break, they'll slam the brakes. But I think I was always trained in Colorado with deers and stuff that if you're gonna hit a deer, you don't break, but you actually just like plow through it. So you actually speed up. That's actually more safe because the deer won't go through your windshield. So I saw this deer coming and I knew that I was gonna hit it. And my, my fight came in. I was like, all right, I, this is going to happen. I need to go faster. And, you know, like, I, I know this is, if you love animals, I'm so sorry. Uh, but I was like, all right, I'm, I'm just going to go. And I floored it and just leveled out this deer. And the person behind me stopped and said, like, the deer actually flew, like, behind. But the thing is this, like, I hit this deer and my car got demolished. And I checked myself. Not a single injury happened. I was fine. And I thought about it and I talked to my chiropractor and he's like, you were fine because you actually embraced for the impact. You knew the impact was coming. And instead of it being a shock to you, you knew that it was coming. And because of that, you braced for impact, knowing that there was something that was going to come. And because of that, you weren't hurt. And that's the thing. Are you preparing yourselves for battle? Do not listen to the voice of the enemy, but remind one another of the voice of truth. What voice are you listening to? The voice that leads you to death or the voice that gives you life? The voice that says, I will chew you up and eat you or spit you out? Or the voice that says, I will come down, be chewed up and die so that you have life? The voice that leads you in chains and in guilt? Or the voice that says, I will be chained and trialed as guilty so that what you will have freedom, the voice that says you are unworthy, or the voice that says, look at my hands and my feet and these nails that are pierced. Uh, I mean, I will die for you. Why? Because you are worthy. 
Do not listen to the lies of the enemy. People of God, opposition will come, and we need to prepare for battle, setting our eyes on the promise of God. Do you set your eyes on the promise of God? Do you remind your wives and your families to set your eyes on the promise of God? Do you daily remind yourselves in prayer by praying with your spouse and your wife and your kids to set your eyes on the power and the vision and the promises of God? Because here's the thing. The next thing is this, the response to opposition, the response to opposition. So let's finish Nehemiah chapter four and starting in verse nine. And it says this, and we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said they will not know or see till they come um, among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that, um, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came with all uh, from all directions and said to us 10 times, we must, you must return to us. So in the lowest part of the space behind the wall, in often places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, it says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who was great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Verse 15, when our enemy heard that it was known to us that, uh, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored at the work with one hand, held his weapon and with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And as I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you heard the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at the time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they might be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor the brothers nor the servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. We each kept his weapon on his right hand. So what happens, right? The response to opposition. When opposition arises, what does Nehemiah do? He prays. He prays. In verse 5, he prays to God. And although it's a prayer of justice to happen, Nehemiah prays. Every time Nehemiah is brought into opposition or anything, he prays. And what does he pray? He prays for God to actually take vengeance on him, on the people, right? And you would think that there would be like a huge battle scene that begins to happen where God's people will be claimed victorious and the people will start to attack. But here's the thing. In the midst of prayer, God does not change the heart of the enemy. He oftentimes changes the heart of his people. 
I'm going to repeat that. I'm going to repeat that if you missed that, right? In the midst of prayer, God does not change the heart of the enemy, although he can. He oftentimes changes the heart of his people. And what does he do? He reminds his people of his faithfulness. And the response in verse 6 is to buckle down, remember the vision, and continue to press on. People had a mind to work. The prayer was answered in the people of God. The prayer reoriented the people's heart to remember that it is God who has called them and the vision is from God. Prayer builds confidence in the work of the Lord. And Nehemiah in his prayer begins to shift his posture and remember the vision and promise. And while there was opposition that arises, it's not just the wall that is being rebuilt, but it's actually the people of God who are being rebuilt. More than the wall being built, people are being built. And that is a promise that God has for his people as we turn to him in the midst of opposition. Family, the truth alone should give us confidence to know that when opposition arises, that we have an answer. And it's reposturing ourselves. God oftentimes lets opposition come on our way because it's a reminder of the dependence that we need on him. God oftentimes lets Opposition come on our way because it's a reminder of the dependence that we need on him. And it's through that prayer that God's people do not just stay still, but what do they do? They take action. Prayer gives us confidence in times of opposition to trust in the Lord to take action. Prayer leads to action. Verse 16 and 17 says this, From that day, half of my servants were working on craftsmanship. Half were holding spears, small shields, bows, and breastplates. The commanders were behind the whole house of Judah. The ones who were building the wall and the ones who carried the materials were carrying in one hand while doing the task. And with the other hand, they were grasping a weapon. So here's the thing. God's people who were discouraged began to have confidence in the power that God of in God that leads to action. Nehemiah turns to God and instead of fighting with fire, he knows who holds the fire. And he makes his prayer to God. He sought the Lord. And Nehemiah understood to set watch. Our call is not that we pray and do nothing. There's action that begins to unfold as we become partners to work with God. Through scripture, we see the power and the sovereignty of God and the response of the people in prayer and action. It says, pray and stay the path. Pray and keep the vision. Pray and keep pressing on. Pray and remember. Pray and go. Hear the jarring prayers to God. And, and all the things they pray, they cling to the Lord. And in that prayer, it leads to action. Pray and set guard. Because oftentimes we pray and we don't act. And we do actions, but we don't pray. But here Nehemiah leads his people by doing both. By doing both. Charles Spurgeon, he's a... Um, a commentator, he's a theologian, a pastor, and uh, a lot of pastors quote um, Charles Spurgeon. This is what he says in, about Nehemiah. He says this, he says, Dear friends, neither of these two guards is sufficient alone. Prayer alone will not avail. To pray and not to watch is presumption. You pretend to trust in God, and yet you are throwing yourselves into danger, as a devil would have Christ do. When he tempted him to cast himself down from the pinnacle of the temple, if you pray to be kept, then be watchful. Prayer without watchfulness is hypocrisy. A man prays to be kept from sin and then goes into temptation. His prayer is evidently a mere piece of mockery, for he does not carry it out 
in his prophet. Whew, that's, that's convicting. That's convicting. And it's that prayer that begins to reshift God's people to begin to press on. And do you see what happens? Nehemiah in his great leadership is leading as someone who is focused, committed, disciplined, devoted, spiritual sensitive, and always setting his face towards God. If we are to become what God wants us to be, we as God's people need to model Nehemiah, constantly reminding one another to pray and press on, to pray and to act. And family of God, you guys are in leadership. You guys have that ability to keep your eyes on God, to pray and act. And that is happening. It's the faithfulness of God's people and the small things that accomplish the big things. Man, um, right when God had actually asked us as a family to church plant, there's been many situations where opposition begins to arise. And oftentimes as a pastor who's called to plant, there's um, a target on my back. And we as a family in this last year, as we decided to church plant, have never uh, felt so much spiritual warfare that has happened in this past year. For example, like um, people are some of our people who fell into sin and and, and some of that stuff that happened and, um, and, and circumstances. Uh, we had a miscarriage actually this year and we felt the lies of the enemy tell us uh, different things and that miscarriage and um, even fundraising has been difficult, right? So on top of that, uh, where I'm supposed to build a team and, and, and do all these things to church plant, we're hit by COVID. And people oftentimes tell me like, man, you're crazy trying to church plant in the midst of everything that's going on. It doesn't make sense that you guys are planting a church in 2021 or 2022. And people tell me all these things. And there are, have been numerous times where I almost was at the verge of giving into the lie of the enemy and to be discouraged. But because there's opposition, it does not change what the will of God. It does not change the vision of God. God is still at work yesterday and today and forever. And God is still doing a work that people are committed to leave with us and plant with us. God has been providing in, in crazy ways. Like um, I remember this one time where I'm fundraising, I'm trying to do these things. This random person that I didn't even know wrote me a check for $25,000 for our church plan. And it's, it's crazy because man, it's and, and me serving at the well, like God has encouraged me time after time after time after time. And here's the thing. As each opposition comes, God leads me to my knees with one prayer that says, God, remind me that you are in control and give me strength to press on. God, remind me that you are in control and give me strength to press on. And every time I pray that prayer, God gives me a heart to stay faithful and keep pressing on, to keep faithful and continue to go. Every time God begins to open doors that I know that I couldn't do alone, that utterly carry out his vision to plant a church in North Austin, God is good. He's at work. Pray and press on. And this ultimately reminds us of my third point, remembering the victory, remembering the victory. Give me a sec. I need to hydrate. Um, remember the victory. 
We as God's people need to guard ourselves, not if opposition comes, but when it does. And six, 2 Timothy 3.12 says this. Indeed, it says, all, all, not some, it says all, but all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, will be persecuted. And as the opposition comes, we are reminded to pray and press on. And we are able to pray and press on. Why? Because of the great victory. Verse 14 says this, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. And it says, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And then verse 20 says this, In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there. And what does it say? It says, Our God will fight for us. And we just sang a song uh, our first song that we sang, that our God will fight for us. So in verse 7, when Sambala, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Amorites, and the Ashurites were plotting against the people, these five groups of people meant that they were surrounded and nowhere to go, right? So what does that really mean? If you look at the uh, geographical um, map of what's happening is all the surrounding uh, enemies were encamping in, in the Israelites, and, and they, were, they were going. They felt like they were cornered. And the waves of opposition were crashing down on them. They felt their backs were against the wall. And it's oftentimes when our backs are against the wall, we need to remember who our victory is in. Because time after time, God sends a savior. Nehemiah had faith that the victory was his because of the promise of God unfolding. He knew that God would bring the victory, that God would fight for us. And isn't, that God, isn't God's love a reminder of that? We see that throughout scripture. In Exodus, we see the Israelites who have their back onto the wall and Pharaoh taking the army to come after them. And as panic begins to rise, God sends Moses as a mediator to say what? He says, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. The Lord, what does he say? will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And then again in Joshua 10, when the, Five Amorite kings come after him. God tells Joshua to say, "What? Well, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do all to your enemies against whom you fight. Even in the book of Isaiah, when Hezekiah needed help to, he turns to Isaiah and the message he has is what? It says, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with, with which the young men of the king of Syria has reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword on his own land. And as God calls Jeremiah to the work, what does he tell him? Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Time after time, God shows his people, do not be afraid, because what I am with you. Time after time, God delivers his people. Time after time, God is showing the deliverance of his people that God will send a mediator. That God is a God who will fight our battle. That even when things seem impossible with sin and death, what God would do, he would send his son. And in his ministry, Jesus tells his people, "What? do not be afraid. Why? Because I have arrived. And we see that. We see that when the disciples are out on the sea, they see the Son of God walk on water, and Jesus comes to them. And what does he say? He says, well, even in the chaos of water and the uncertainty, 
Jesus says, the first thing he says is take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Almost as if Jesus is saying what? I, the son of God, the divine warrior, have arrived. And you would think that the son of God, when he arrives, he will take vengeance on the enemy and a great victory will begin to happen and he will smite evil. But what do we see? We see the son of God where we are discouraged when he was dead. Jesus who became naked so that we are clothed. Jesus who took it all so that we have victory. Jesus who took the battle to die why? so that we have new life. Jesus who would fight our fight so that we will never have to be afraid. The God's redemptive story, the redemption of God's story in the Bible that we have is that we have a divine warrior in the Son of God. And when it seems like his back was against the wall, what happened? Matthew 25, 8. After Jesus died, Mary and Mary went to go see the tomb of Jesus. And it says the angel appeared. And what does the angel say? The angel says, do not be afraid. For I know that you see Jesus who has been crucified. And it says, he is not here, for he has risen. It's almost as if Jesus was, and the angel is saying, Mary and Mary, you don't ever have to be afraid because of the resurrection of Christ. That we will never have to be afraid because the victory is ours. And isn't that the truth that death has been defeated and now that we don't have to live in fear. Forest Community Church, are you reminded of that victory? The resurrection of Jesus does not happen on Easter, but happens in every single day of your lives as we reflect on the beauty of what and who Jesus did and the accomplishment on the cross. That death is no more. We no longer have to live in fear. What good news. God is at work. Do you believe in the power and the work of Jesus? Let me conclude with this. So after Nehemiah prays and takes action, after he reminds his people to not be afraid, it says he sends the people out, verse 17 and 18, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had a sword strapped on to his side where he was built. So Charles Spurgeon, who I quoted earlier, after studying this passage, he actually started this magazine called The Sword and the Trowel. The Sword and the Trowel. So if you guys don't know, a trowel is, is if you don't know, it's a, a gardening tool to build. So it's a, it's a tool to build something up. And the imagery we get here is that God's people have a sword in one hand. I'm being intentional here. A sword in one hand. A sword that goes offensive and defensive. And a trowel in the other hand. One that builds up, that fights for community, that begins to build disciples and build the church. And my command and and my encouragement for Forest Community Church is like, man, do we really believe in that? That we have a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other hand. It's both things that fight opposition. Family of God, I pray that we be a church that loves the sword and builds a city. That Forest Community Church, that you guys learn what it means to fight for one another. Again, to look to the sword 
in one hand and to build one another up with the other hand. That is the victory that we have. Do not listen to the lies of opposition that tell you otherwise. The victory is ours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.